Welcome to Season 2 of The Morning Glory Project. I'm your host, Betsy Graziani-Fassbender. And on this podcast, I bring to you guests of a lot of different kinds, survivors and thrivers, innovators and trailblazers, folks that have fallen down and gotten back up, folks that have been knocked down and gotten back up. Basically, I ask every single guest the same question. How did you get through what you got through? And the reason I ask that is because I think that when we share those stories, we gain empathy for those different than ourselves. We gain understanding from those whose circumstances may resemble our own. But we all get to walk away with a little notion of how we might get through whatever we're going through. I hope you enjoyed these stories and feel free to go to themorningglory.project.com to find any past episodes or to listen to one again and feel free to share us out with your friends and give us a reviewer like we sure do appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Today, I'd like to welcome to the Morning Glory Project, Terry Sue Harms. She's the author of her third book, which is a remarkable accomplishment for anyone, really. But for a woman who didn't start reading until she was in her early 20s, it's really quite a feat. This new release is a memoir titled The Strong Box. In it, Terry Sue reveals the grit, tenacity, and courage it took to not only tackle her reading disability, but also to find her absent biological father and face his rejections. Terry Sue didn't begin writing until she was in her 40s, but she'd been a hairdresser since the time she was a teenager, and it's in that intimate storytelling nature of that profession that fueled her personable, candid, and compelling writing style. You can find out more about her at terrysueharms.com or on Facebook. Terry Sue, welcome to the Morning Glory Project. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you, Betsy. It's wonderful to be here with you. So Terry Sue, your book, is, first of all, it's a beautiful cover. I love the way that it looks. It's called The Strong Box. Can you tell me about the basic story of that book and, and the title? Sure. Uh, the title comes from the fact that I was searching for my father from uh, the time my mother died. She passed away when I was 16, suddenly and unexpectedly, basically taking the story of her relationship with my father with her to the grave. And after she was gone, I had a decades-long process of trying to identify and meet my biological father. And the clues came from these papers that were inside this metal file box my mother had had. So I had these two letters between attorneys, and they, they referenced child support, but it didn't say if it was one child or two children, my brother and I. And so I was really at a loss. I didn't know if my mother had, you know, if I had a different father and then the person named on these letters. And so it was, it was through the clues that I, I picked out of this strong box. The strong box is the only thing of my mother's that I still have. And as I was writing this story, it became apparent that not only was it the, the vessel for her papers, but that she was a very strong woman. She was a, a very difficult and um, complicated woman, but she was also very strong. And so the the reference just to the words, you know, the the idea of strength, 
was really meaningful to me. Well, and also it seems that she was also a pretty secretive woman. She was locked off, right? And she didn't really open up to you, certainly about the history of your paternity. That's true. You've got that absolutely right. <laughs> there was, um, it was a, a very difficult story. And my mother didn't, didn't really talk about my father ever. And the only time she did say anything about him, she would, she was an alcoholic and, and she died when she was 43 from alcoholism, essentially. And uh, she would at times call friends from across the country and um, that she had had in childhood, I guess. I didn't even know who she was talking to, but I would hear her say occasionally, I worshiped the ground that man walked on. And of course, I wanted that to be my father, whoever she was talking about. Um, I knew that the man she was married to, my stepfather, was not my father. And that was a, a painful fact that he would uh, fight with her and he would call me a bastard, that bastard of yours. And so I knew that the nature of my father was not a good one. And so it was a secretive subject. It was a shameful, buried subject. Um, it was kind of fighting words to even bring him up. So I, as a little kid, I certainly didn't bring him up. And um, in their fights, it was just a, a very painful thing to hear. And Well, so you didn't bring him up. You, did you ever point blank kind of ask your mom, who's my dad? I'm afraid I didn't. You say that so shyly, like you're ashamed that you didn't, but... I'm wondering, it sounds like there just wasn't any, what's the word I'm looking for? There was no license in your household for such questions, it sounds like. That's right. And um, so I, I, I'm i afraid I didn't, it, for me, when I say that is um, that the, the, the situation was, was so fraught that... Um, I, I'm sorry for how, how really how fraught my mother's life was and that the mm -hmm. environment was so um, tamped down. And uh, so I, I didn't, I, I didn't ever have the courage to confront her about, about anything. Her, her drinking gave her this very flinty temper and setting her off was the last thing I wanted to do. I learned that young intuitively I think, you know, another kid may have been the kind that would really challenge and, and, you know, there'd be constant fighting. And, and I was, I was always the fallback, you know, fall back to the corners if I could. I didn't, I didn't want to engage in that kind of fighting. And so I didn't challenge her about who was he. You know, Terry Sue, it's interesting. I, I talked to lots of people, both as a therapist and as a friend and as an author, and just as a human, right? And it's amazing how many children learn rules in their households that nobody ever said out loud. You know, they learn not to ask certain things. They learn not to do certain things, or they just know that something is dangerous. Like you knew not to get into that strong box while your mother was living. Correct. Right? I mean, that just wouldn't have been done. Right. You knew not to ask about your father. Correct. Yeah, it, it, it was one of those implied messages that, that came across loud and clear for me. Hmm. Isn't it interesting that you say loud and clear when it wasn't said? 
it, 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 it kind of validating what I'm saying, right? <laughs> like we hear it even though it's not said. Mm-hmm. I mean, the 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 unspoken rules mm. um, and and the the I guess the booby traps and the trip hazards everywhere that that probably as a smart young woman like you, smart girl like you were, and young woman as you grew up, you knew not to trip the trip wires. Correct. Or you tried not to. <laughs> Bravo for you, by the way. It probably kept you safe. That is exactly right. Yeah. I like the way you say that because uh, <laughs> it, it was, you know, I think telling this story, what what has made it possible for me to tell this story is that I have so much distance between where I was as a child and where I am today. So I can look back and and acknowledge Yes, I was walking through a minefield as a child mm-hmm. and I and I did it. And so today it's it's looking back and and recognizing the strength again the the strong box the strength uh it took to stay alert and um essentially survive my childhood. Well to stay alert to stay alive to stay to some degree insulated, you, you, it sounds like you were a bit of a strong box yourself, <laughs> Terry Sue. Um, I'm wondering also, of course, how it is that in your circumstances, you, you went to school, I gather, mm-hmm. like lots of kids. How is it that you got all the way to adulthood without being able to read? I get asked that question a lot and I've had a lot of time to think about it and um, my thought is I was I was a kid in the 60s and that idea of no child left behind hadn't even been invented yet so I was able to just stay quiet not draw a lot of attention to myself and then I had, you know, my home life was neglectful. My parents didn't, you know, care what I was doing in school just as long as I got out of the house. And I did a fairly good job reading body language and hearing the teachers. And um, so I could respond verbally to questions. So maybe uh, the I just presented well enough and the schools really did want to, you know, pass kids on. They didn't want to flunk kids. And so I just got passed from grade to grade through, you know, good cheating, good observation skills, um, a family that, that wasn't going to ask me to sit down and read anything in front of them. And um, I uh, just had so many other things on my mind also that it wasn't until you know, I became an adult that I even realized that not reading was kind of a red flag. <laughs> not not just a red flag, but a big barrier in your life, I imagine. I, I imagine it kept you from a lot of options that might have otherwise been available to somebody that's bright and capable. Clearly, you know, as you tell your story, I, I think of other um, challenges or disabilities that people have that they're able to hide. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of a former a Morning Glory Project guest, Jen Pasiloff, who hid the fact that she had a hearing loss. Mm-hmm. 
and just, and people thought she was spacey or didn't care or wasn't paying attention. And she was, she kind of let that be the assumption that they had, that that was somehow less shameful for her than, than her hearing loss of all things to be ashamed of. And I think of people who are suffering the very beginnings of dementia and how they pretend that they remembered things that they don't remember, or people that fake that they understand a, a language when they only speak it a little bit instead of fluently. And I, I think of all of those masks that we wear to hide things that we're ashamed of mm-hmm. or things that we just don't want other people to know about us. That must have been quite a strain. Uh, I suppose it was. Um, I, I think it's almost um, where I didn't, I didn't know what I didn't know. And so I didn't mm-hmm. miss anything at the time. But uh, what I what I did know is that um, I was, you know, a big people pleaser. And I got a lot of, you know, good strokes from people on the periphery. So, you know, I would clean the teacher's eraser or I would run out to the hall and fill her water glass for her. And so I kind of engendered a lot of goodwill. And and that too helped me get from grade to grade. It sounds like you kind of hid your illiteracy by being a good girl. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when a, when a kid acts up or is is oppositional or defiant in a classroom, they get a lot of attention sometimes, the squeaky wheel, right? Yeah. You just didn't squeak. <laughs> right. <laughs> you, you were the well-oiled wheel, I guess, yeah. in that way. Yeah. Well, your story, Terry Sue, reads like a detective novel because the strong box was just the beginning of the clues. Correct. And here you were with learning and reading challenges and... In an era, so I, I can safely, I don't usually say how old are you, but what, what year were you born? So we can kind of get a notion of the era. I was born 1960. So 1960. So you're at the end of the baby boomers here. So when you started doing research on these names and these attorneys, we're, we're talking about microfiche and libraries, not internet so much, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, and uh, you know, it wasn't like... I'm assuming you didn't have a giant pile of money to hire a private investigator to do it all. Correct. So how did you go about this search? So how did you figure out who your father might be? On these letters, uh, my mother was CC'd on these letters. And so they were letters between two attorneys. And um, they did say my father's name. Um, but it, initially, I didn't know if that was my brother's father. The, the, the letters were referencing $20 a week for child support. And I thought that was a very little amount of money. And I thought it was possible that it would be my brother's. So the fact that they said we're referencing child support and not you know anything about children or anything to give me a clue that it was two children, I wasn't sure. But he was the only name that I found. And so I kind of you know, locked onto that and hoped that that he would be my father. And then also these checks did arrive in an envelope with this man's name on them every month up until the time I was 15. And, and you had seen them? I had seen them in the mail. Uh, and until I was 15, they, they would come in the mail and they had, you know, this little bit of money and we were, we were desperately poor. And so it was always good when that, you know, when that check arrived, but there was never any letter or anything. It was just, there was a return address on it. 
And so I, I had this, you know, hope that it would be him, but also that this was somebody who knew my mother's distant past before I, you know, this was somebody who knew my mother. And since I couldn't get information out of my stepfather, I thought, well, you know, maybe he knows something, even if he's not my father. So I, I pursued him and, um, I didn't know what I was doing. I was, you know, a kid. And, and so my first attempt at finding him, I did hire an, a private investigator, oh. a fellow that I found in the phone book. You know, I didn't know what I was doing. And so this guy, he asked me for a hundred bucks and, and he was, he was like straight out of a Chandler novel or something. He, he, you know, had a drawer with a Kessler's <laughs> bottle in it and you offered me some whiskey and, um, and it was just like this old dusty detective. I mean, he just kind of had to sweep all of his papers and crap off his desk into a garbage can so that he could make room to write notes, what I was telling him. If it was a movie, that'd be a cliche, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but here it was real. Exactly. And so when I left he said, okay, give me a hundred up front and a hundred when I get some information for you. And, um, I thought, wow, either I just have been taken or I'll actually hear back from the guy. And, and I did, but he gave me the name of somebody or he, he gave me information about a workplace for some man. And so I went to that workplace and they were like, no, we've never heard of that person. <laughs> so, so that didn't pay off didn't so well. Off. So there were lots of blind alleys and false starts. And um, so that's why this story does read like a detective story. It's just kind of a, a bumbling along, trying to find some foothold in, in some traction and uh, it took a while, it, it, like 40 years. <laughs> and so all the, all the while of this search, too, you're also battling your limited ability to read well. Correct. And tell me, tell me exactly the nature of, of your reading disorder or, or what you, whatever you call it. Yeah, um, I, I would say reading disability. And um, I have not been officially diagnosed, but I've talked to enough people and speech pathologists, and they all seem to feel that my issue is something called figure ground perception disability. And that means that the white space on the page jumps off way more than the black space. And so while I was being a dutiful, you know, quiet little girl being passed from grade to grade, that was never diagnosed or even examined. But um, I say, because they teach you to read by the shape of the black stuff instead of the white stuff, I just was kind of left out of the, the learning process. Mm. And I believe that this is still with me. I've uh, now that I've learned how to read, trained my brain to to lock onto the black letters along the page. I I I know what that's all about, but if I get asked spontaneously to read something, you know, a cartoon or a, a gift card or a menu even, I can go into this mind place where everything just kind of fades out and I can't lock onto the words. So even to this day, it, it can it can strike and um what I know to do now is I, I grab the first word and I might even say it a little bit out loud and kind of latch on to the, to the line of words in, in the sentence. Hmm. 
once again adapting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, once again, it's it's you sort of compensating for and figuring out a way around the challenges. So I don't want to spoil the ending of this book, so I'm not going to ask you if you ever met your father. But you did indeed determine who he is. And what what was that like for you when you when you figured that out? That was um, infuriating uh, because mm. I felt that I had pussyfooted around this man for decades, hoping that he would unlock some door to my understanding of, of who my father was. And I, I didn't know if it was him. So I soft pedaled every approach, every letter that I sent to him, every endeavor I, I took to, to meet him. I was very cautious not to be heavy handed in my approach. I, I wanted to be a, approachable. I wanted him to talk to me. And so I was very, very gentle in, um, you know, please help me understand who you are or who my father might is. And when I discovered he knew all along that I was his daughter and he still kept me in the dark, it was, it was infuriating. And that um, set me off for a few weeks. And my friends were just, you know, like, I've never seen you like this. Mm. Well, I can imagine you had all kinds of ideas about him and maybe even fantasies about some, you know, hug of a reunion and tearful reuniting with him. And and here he was still being distant and and he knew about you. It wasn't like you were a secret. Right. It's kind of have been shattering to have that, those fantasies. Right. It's one thing to think somebody is, you know, kind of off your radar and doesn't even know it. It's another to face the fact that, you know, no, this is, this is a decision that was made. And uh, so. Uh, I'm so sorry. Well, you know, uh, <laughs> again, that, that idea of strength. Um, I do have, you know, kind of an internal, you know, meditative kind of go-to place. And I had to ask myself at, at one point, you know, what is it that I really want from this man? And it was what came in that meditation that uh, put me on the path to actually having peace. And I realized that really what I was looking for was a sincere apology. Mm. I, I, at that point, didn't need, I didn't need his friendship. I didn't need his accolades. I didn't need his money. Um, but I did need to hear that you know, you know, when it comes to the father piece, I just couldn't do it. I'm sorry. Or, uh, you know, I, I wish I had done better. I'm sorry. I couldn't have done better. I'm sorry. My choices impacted your life. That was what I really was longing for. And you can't demand that. Gosh, I wonder, I wonder how many searches have been driven by exactly that desire. Yeah. You know, somebody just wanting someone to say they're sorry. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder how much agony there's been around the world for centuries and millennia of people craving just those simple words. It's, it's a very interesting subject because I think 
restoration or uh, restorative justice is all about that um, restorative justice where where the the person in jail is actually talking to the person they victimized mm. and getting beyond the you know hate and and assumptions and um, finding a place of of you know one person being able to say I'm sorry and the other person to be able to say I hear you, I understand, or even I forgive you. And I think that um, what happens is if you're not ready to do that as the person who needs to apologize, if you're not ready to do that, then you say, you know, in my case, maybe, you know, oh, she must be after my money or she must be after something, uh, something less honorable. Hmm. And so it gives it gives cover for the the defense to to well I don't want anything to do with that person because they must they must want to get me in some way, and and it it's kind of a miraculous thing when two people can come together and recognize really all all my little soul needs is for you to acknowledge what happened and say I'm sorry. You know, Terry Sue, as you're talking, I'm thinking of the strangest thing. I'm thinking everything from conflicts with loved ones to, like you talk about restorative justice. I'm wondering how much agony could be solved Mm -hmm. by such simple choices, (laughs) such just being less defended, just being open, just being less threatened you know, just saying, I'm sorry, just telling somebody simply what you want. It just seems like there's so, I think of each of those as like a little rock that forms a wall, you know, but there are thousands of them, Mm -hmm. the assumptions and the fears and the threat and the history and the betrayal and the resentment and all of these things just form this wall when each one of them doesn't have to always be such a giant obstacle if we could just clear them out a little bit, huh? I agree. And, and, you know, the key is sincere, a sincere apology to just say, you know, oh, I'm sorry you feel that mm. way. I'm sorry you feel that way. Right. Uh, that's that's not going to cut it. No. It is it is the the real you know self evaluation and and coming to a place where it's like, oh, I really, I really blew it on that one. I'm, I, you know, I just I I will be eternally sorry for the the choice I made in that moment. And, you know, that's kind of all we can do as people. Right. So here's my, here's my next question for you, Terry Sue. You mentioned meditation, but I'm wondering in addition to that, or, or tell me about that as well. How did you keep going in this search? How did you keep going from, and we talked about how you made it as a little girl kind of adapting and being people pleasing and and a nice girl and those things. But how did you keep going in this search when it was so discouraging in so many ways? I, I think it's just in my nature to be optimistic and I'm very grateful for that in my personality. Um, It wasn't until recently that I really knew, okay, this is, this is the way this is going to go down. There's not going to be, there's not going to be a tearful reunion. But until I, I was really clear about that, I, I held out hope. I, I thought, you know, well, stranger things have happened, you know, good things do happen. And so I, 
I have a very optimistic kind of rosy outlook in life. Okay. But I'm going to poke on you just a little bit. Mm. I want to poke on you just a little bit because I believe you. I believe that you're an optimistic person. But my question is, how in the world do you think you got that given the household that you grew up in and the, the, the mayhem, more of which you go into in the book that we haven't discussed, but mm-hmm. how do you think you're, you were able to preserve that kind of optimism given how pessimistic <laughs> your, your, not only just your search for your father, but your entire upbringing was in lots of ways. How do you, how do you keep that optimism? I, I believe that I was born with it. I believe it's, uh, you know, nature over nurture. It's, it's what I came into this world and this life with a a healthy dose of optimism. Mm. And while I was growing up, I had, you know, I, I knew that the man my mother was married to and the chaos that came from from that marriage, that he was not my father. So I always had this dangling carrot out there that there was another life that wasn't this one that that had, you know, that looked more like what my friends' homes look like. You know, uh, there was more predictability mm-hmm. in the home. So I had this internal belief that there was a better life out there than the one that I was living. And so... I think I just held on to that. There's what I was looking for. Mm-hmm. That's what I was looking for because I, I I believe you. I believe that sometimes we are born with a certain disposition. Some of us are prone toward depression and some people are prone to anxiety. All of those things are true, but it seems as though also whatever we're, you know, you talked about nature versus nurture. Mm-hmm. That may have been the nature you were born with, but it sounds as though you also chose to keep that. Yeah. You know, there was at some point a, you know, I'm going to frame this picture my way, the picture you didn't have control over, but I'm going to frame it with the, it can be another way Mm -hmm. view. It's sort of where you put your gaze. Does that feel true for you? It does. It does. And I, I think that that pulled me through many of my challenges growing up, um, even after leaving home and, and leaving the environment that, that, was so sort of traumatic. Um, I I've always put the goalpost a little higher than what was easy, mm. and it's it's delivered for me. the The efforts have paid off. Well, they certainly have with this beautiful book. They certainly have with this beautiful book. And not only is it it's a riveting story and candidly candidly told. In a in both a vulnerable and a strong way, which seems like the perfect formula for memoir mm. to me, Terry Sue. So thank you so much for being part of the Morning Glory Project. I strongly encourage folks to find Terry Sue Harms' book, The Strong Box, and it's available wherever books are sold. You can always find it at that big online bookstore, but I encourage you, even in these days of COVID-19, to contact your local independent bookstore and ask them to order it for you. It may cost another buck, but it's a way to keep those bookstores that are so struggling alive for us. So her book, The Strong Box, Terry Sue Harms, thank you so much for being part of the Morning Glory Project. I'm so pleased to have had you today. My pleasure. Thanks for a wonderful conversation. I appreciate it. 
I've been thinking about my conversation with Terry Sue Harms. Her beautiful memoir, The Strong Box, is a testament to exactly why she's on The Morning Glory Project. She is a story of determination, somebody who has overcome so much to claim the life that she has. But I'm also struck by something about myself in her story, and that is that when I met her, and I, I've met Terry Sue exactly one time in person about a year and a half ago, pre-pandemic, when we used to get to meet people in person. Remember that? We'll get there again. But when I met her, she's such a sunny, warm, kind, funny person, put together and bright and all of those things. I would have had no idea, no way in that encounter to know that she is a survivor of abuse, of neglect, of addiction, of poverty, and that she's endured a long period of illiteracy that she overcame. Nothing in my encounter with her would have told me that. So it strikes me how many times I'm probably wrong in how I assess people on the basis of how they look. You know, it's that old, don't judge a book by the cover thing. I know it's a cliche and all of that, but there's some wisdom there. And to me, it's that we so often assess people on the basis of our assumptions and our judgments and not with our curiosity and our compassion. I recently read or rather listened to the audiobook of Malcolm Gladwell's Talking with Strangers, which I really recommend. It's really inspiring and insightful, and it let me ask myself these questions. That Perhaps that's why I'm thinking about this with regard to Terry Sue. How often we make assessments about somebody's truthfulness or integrity or intelligence or any other quality just on the basis of what we're bringing to the encounter, our assumptions, our judgments, our history, our context, and not necessarily theirs. You know, we may look at somebody that looks beautiful or strong, or they drive a certain kind of a car, or they live in a certain kind of a home, and we think we know their story. But you know, we don't really know somebody's story until we hear them tell their story, and we really listen with an open heart and an open mind. That's what I'm striving to do, and I I have a long way to go, people, we all do, but I feel like I have a long way to go in this process, and It's a lifelong effort. Thanks so much for listening to The Morning Glory Project. This is airing in December of 2020, during the middle of what's been a very long pandemic period of isolation, of when we can't do things that we normally do and can't gather the way that we normally do with people that we care about. And we're getting weary But let's not let our weariness determine our actions. Stay safe out there. This problem isn't over just because we're tired of it. And I invite us all to stay safe and to use good judgment and to be careful out there. The time will come again when we can gather and we want everyone that we loved to be with us when we do. Thanks so much for listening to The Morning Glory Project and I hope that wherever you are, 
that you are safe and well and that you are finding a way to bloom. <laughs>